0: This message was presented at the GYC Conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. For other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org. Good morning again. Is it still morning time? Feels like morning time. Feels like afternoon time. My name is Anil Kanda. I'm excited about presenting uh, these messages. I do want to say that uh, none of these messages, by the way, are meant to be fully exhaustive. Uh, I like... Doing seminars in which that sort of provokes new thinking and opens up uh, sort of a a greater light on the situation, understanding, but uh, you got a million questions after each one of these seminars? Good. I feel like I succeeded. Um, I I want you to think through things, and I want you to feel like, man, I know what I believe in. I can see the big picture of God in in regards to this. Amen? Amen. 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 Uh, Let's let's bow our heads for a word of prayer, then we'll jump into the message right away. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much again for um, grace and mercy. Thank you for forgiveness of our sins. Thank you for the love that draws us to you. We pray and ask that you would bless us with wisdom and understanding. And God, as we grapple with this issue, we pray that your word would speak. Father in heaven, um, we want to tread upon this ground with uh, humility and uh, just the understanding, God, that your ways are always greater than our ways. Thank you again for hearing prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Right. The name of the sermon is called Sodom and Sexuality. God Created Sex. What a title, right? Uh, today we're going to be talking about, guess what? <laughs> wow, that sounds confident right there. <laughs> right? But it's sort of indicative, and that was actually a test, it's sort of indicative of our inability to want to actually express maybe a desire to learn about this subject or to understand more. So whenever I say we're going to be talking about... Sex. Still, there seems to be some <laughs> apprehension here. Um, hopefully, by the end of this, that when I say God, we're going to be talking about... Sex! sex. All right, that's a little too much on some part. <laughs> Anyways, but... Uh, we're going to be talking about the, the beautiful biblical picture of sex. Can you say amen to that? Yeah. Amen. Amen. All right. Let's get started with this. It's really amazing. Um, I actually uh, I have a different degrees. One of the degrees I have actually is a political science degree. When I was pastoring, I was doing some campus ministry at a nearby college and university. And uh, I realized that I had to take a class to actually do the, uh, to, to do a public campus ministry. So I took a class. And then I realized I wasn't too far away from, a, from an AA. I already had a bachelor's, but I thought, hey, another AA, I might as well work on that. And so I finished up an AA in language and rationality. I thought, wait a minute, why not, why stop there, <laughs> you know? And so I took another class and transferred to the nearby university, and I finished up a political science degree. One of the classes that I had to take was a class on international relations. And I never forgot, one morning I woke up, and I was studying out the Book of Daniel, and I came across something amazing in the spirit of prophecy, where Ellen White talks about um, that it's extremely important to study the rise and fall of nations. The rise and fall of nations. And you can see this bear out in the book of Daniel. And I thought, wow, to study up the rise and fall of societies and nations is also meant to be a study for eternity as well. When we, you know, millions of years in the future, we will still review some of the lessons and experiences of our world today. That very morning when I thought about that, when I was excited about that, I went to class and there, right out of the blue, the teacher that very morning in the international relations class said, hey, it's really interesting, there are actually uh, politicians and presidents who will put together committees on the rise and fall of nations. And so I thought about that, I'm like, man, that's really incredible, Uh, That's actually my phone, right? That's embarrassing right now. Okay, sorry. All right. The rise and fall of nations. And I'm like, whoa. So I started making a study of what are the factors that bring about the rise and fall of a nation. It's really interesting. I came across a study of a book uh, book called Sex and Culture by J.D. Unwin. And it's really interesting. He examines data from 86 societies. And uh, somebody's giant head is blocking the... uh, your head is not giant, by the way. It's a nice head. Let's continue with this. Ugman, uh okay, let's continue. Ugwin examines the data from 86 societies and civilizations to see if there's, notice this, a relationship between sexual freedom and the flourishing of cultures. In other words, as sexuality becomes more open and something that has this sort of creative license and experimentation, they found that it affected the rise and fall of nations. How so? What makes the book especially interesting is that we in the West underwent a sexual revolution in the late 1960s, 70s, and 80s, and now in a position to test the conclusions, he arrived at more than years earlier. But what was that? He discovered that with boring monotony, the results were this. Civilizations with more sexual restraint ascended and flourished, and less restrained civilizations became inner or dead. 86 na- uh, nations were studied in regard to this. Number two. When the thriving nations or civilizations adopted looser sexual practices, it took about three generations, 100 years, before they became a dead culture, meaning no longer flourishing. Number three, the two greatest markers of loss of sexual restraint were the abandonment of prenuptial chastity, sex before marriage, and modified monogamy, rampant divorce. This is really interesting. There is a very strong correlation between sexuality and the, uh, poster- the, the prosperity of a nation. Continues. In summary, the author says this. God's moral laws are not simply a bunch of arbitrary rules given to restrict mankind's freedom. Instead, they are like operating instructions designed to spare people from suffering while maximizing human flourishing. J.D. Unwin also discovered that when a highly developed culture undergoes an increase in sexual freedom, notice this, A collapse of that culture falls within three generations. The historical data reveals this pattern with monotonous regularity. In other words, it happens every single time. Every single time the pattern is clear. It cannot be denied. Here's what other commentators said about his book. In human records, there is no instance of society retaining its energy, its vitality, It's prosperity after a complete new generation has inherited, notices, a tradition which does not insist on prenuptial and postnuptial continents. Let's continue. If the British anthropologist J.D. Unwin is correct in his assessment of society, this is mind-blowing right here, this present generation in the Westernist world may be the last one. In his book, Sex and Culture, Professor Unwin studied 80 uncivilized cultures and he compared his results with 16 civilized cultures, extending over the last 4,000 years. He found when strict Heterosexual monogamy was practiced. The society attained its greatest cultural energy. Especially, get this, in the arts. Interesting. Sciences and technology. But as people rebelled against the prohibitions placed upon them and demanded more sexual opportunities, there was a consequent loss of their creative energy, which resulted in the decline and eventual destruction of the civilization. Remarkably, he did not find any exception to this trend. In fact, we're going to be taking a good look at one society that uh, that actually um, verified his results. Take your Bible. Let's go to the Book of Genesis. We're going to be looking at Sodom. Book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 19. Genesis chapter 19. And I want you to identify for me when I hone in on a few different passages in this chapter, the common denominator that exists. And you're going to see uh, sort of the the fruit sin that existed in Sodom and Gomorrah. The Bible calls an example of everlasting destruction in the book of Jude. Now notice what the Bible says right here, starting with Genesis chapter 19, verse 1. Now the two angels came to Sodom where? And Lot was sitting where? In the gate of Sodom. When you actually read a few chapters before, when Lot separates from Abraham, he actually wants to uh, sort of migrate and establish a place near Sodom. But when you read this chapter, where is he found? In Sodom. in Sodom. You go near Sodom, you'll eventually end up in Sodom. Let's continue with this. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them. He bowed himself with his face towards the ground. And he said, here now, my lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night. Wash your feet that you may rise early and go your way. And they said, no, but we will spend the night in the open square. But he insisted strongly, so they turned into him, entered his house, he made a feast, baked unleavened bread, and they ate. Now I want you to pay attention to our first experience in Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 4. Now when they lay down the men of the city, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter surrounded the house, and they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. This is very interesting. I want you to pay attention to this first experience. You see, Lot because of his hospitality of what he had learned under Abraham, brings these two guests in, unbeknownst to him, unaware to him that these were actually angels. And as he brought them in, all of a sudden a crowd began to gather outside of young and old men. And as they came closer to the door, it seems to be part of the sort of pattern of nightlife in Sodom, they demanded that these two visitors be brought out. They wanted to take them by force. Now I want you to pay attention to what the Bible says next. Notice Lot's response, verse 6, and you're going to start seeing the common denominator here. So Lot went to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, Please, my brethren, do not do so wickedly. See, now I have two daughters who have not known a man. Please let me bring them out to you, and you may do to them as you wish. Only do nothing to these men. Now let me ask you a question. When Lot said that, do you think his two daughters were up like in the back? we like, Ah, oh, Father, that's a great idea. <laughs> It was not a good idea. Well, how do you know this? Because when you actually read the book of Hebrews, uh, the scriptures do not commend Lot for his hospitality. It commends Abraham for his hospitality. Number two, the other example that you have is something similar happening in the, in the time of Sodom. is actually found in the book of Judges where the Levite priest actually, or the Levite actually does something similar with the woman. He throws her out and the men had her. And this is very, something very important for us to understand here. Something is happening in the culture of Sodom, and you know the rest of the story. What takes place next? The angels intercede. They blind the men. They begin to take everyone out of the town. Lot's wife looks back. She turns into a pillar of stone, a pillar of salt. They get to a cave, and notice what the Bible says happens in the cave, verse thirty. And you're going to show, point to me, what is that common denominator right now, verse thirty. Then Lot went up out of Zor and dwelt in the mountains and his two daughters were with him for he was afraid to dwell in Zor and he and his two daughters dwelt in a cave. Now the firstborn said to the younger, our father is old and there is no man on earth to come in to us as is the custom of all the earth. They thought this was a veritable flood situation where the destruction of the world took place and they were the only people left on earth and they thought, wait a minute, it'd be a good idea for us to procreate with our father. So notice the scheme that they have to procreate with their father. Verse 32, come, let us make our father drink what? Drink wine, and we will lie with him that we may preserve the lineage of our father. Now, I want you to notice, what is the common denominator that happens here? You notice the common denominator with the the first uh, instance you have, the men of Sodom wanting to take the, the two angels, right? And then you learn about Lot willing to say, wait, why don't you just send out my two daughters? And then you notice his daughters were like, hey, we need to procreate with our father. Let's get him drunk. What is the common denominator and seems to be the spirit of Sodom? In every one of those circumstances, they were willing to violate the freedom of another person to satisfy the the sort of cravings of another individual or entity. In every one of them. Well, how do you know this? Because the men of Sodom wanted to take those two visitors by force. Law wasn't like, hey, I'm going to ask my two daughters if they think this was a great idea. He was willing to send his two daughters out. And then you notice what his two daughters did. They were like, wait a minute. We know our father's not going to deal with this uh, by his own choice. He's not going to be okay with this. Let's put him... let's, let's, Let's slip him a roofie, right? Let's get him drunk. And he gets knocked out. And you know what they do? They sleep with him. And two pagan nations come out of that. And what you find in Sodom... You find people who are willing to violate the choice of another individual to satisfy something in regards to sexuality. This is the spirit of Sodom, and it's not different from some of the spirit that exists in today's world. Sodom's problem was the problem of a selfish pursuit of pleasure. Rather than participating in selfless community, which includes a mutuality within biblical sexuality, the inhabitants of Sodom corrupted sexuality, made it selfish, violent, and what's that next word? Destructive. And so it's very important for us to understand in our world today, how do we navigate when you have so many voices saying this about sex, this saying about this about sex, this about sex, and this about sex. It could be people from all the way from, you know, people who are supposed to be very religious and spiritual to individuals who are just out in the world. We are finding out, thank you very much, just so many voices and perspectives about sexuality. All you have to do is watch television for about 24 hours and you will realize Everything across the spectrum in regards to sexuality, there is an education that is being brought upon this very world. But that's why we need to go straight to the Word of God. Can you say amen to that? We need to understand what are the principles, the biblical principles of sexuality. Here's something that's super important for us to understand, and that is this. When truths in Scripture are not appreciated, and they're not celebrated, and they're not talked about, it creates a void which then becomes... A space for aberrations, for counterfeits, and every other heresy. I want to be very frank with you on this. For a very long time, our church has really not grappled with the subject of sex. We have dealt with it purely from a doctrinal standpoint of making sure that marriage is between one man and one woman, but we really never really talked and appreciated biblical sexuality. Amen? Should be louder amens than that. God wants us to celebrate biblical sexuality. And this is very important. I mean, I grew up in a culture, the Indian culture, where I mean, you just don't talk about it. Even in today's Bollywood movies, they generally you will not see a man and woman kiss. The first time, and I hope my mom never ever listens to this sermon. <laughs> I remember that my friend told me, he said, you know your mom and your dad are still... And I was like, what do you mean by that? And he's like, you know they're still... And I and I could not understand, like literally, my mind was not capable of like I I I like even my existence, I did not know how it came about. I was just like, I just know we're here. And my mom and my dad love each other. And as a young man, when he was just trying to express to me, hey, your mom and dad obviously you still have a physical relationship. When he finally just said it, I was like, I, I cannot believe this. <laughs> like I never saw my mom and dad kiss. Okay? Still have, my dad passed away, but I never saw my mom and dad kiss once. Okay? And uh, this was just something like, I was just like, when they told me, I was like, this cannot be true. It cannot be true. And my friend says to me, Look, well, how'd you guys come about? And I was like, I don't know, we just were here. <laughs> And this exists in many different forms. It exists within Adventism. It exists outside of Adventism. It exists definitely in the Catholic Church. It exists outside the Catholic Church. It exists in the world in different religions and different cultural groups. Have sort of their their version of educating people about sexuality. But if there's ever a time we need to understand biblical sexuality, it is now. Can you say amen to that? All right, so let's take a good look at this. Number one, God created what? Sexuality. Sexuality. Take your Bible. Let's go to the book of Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1, by the way, is sort of God's creation story. Genesis chapter 2 is God's favorite part of creation story, which is the creation of mankind and his bride, right? In Genesis chapter 2, something amazing takes place. Genesis chapter 2, I want you to see how the story of perfection ends. Genesis chapter 2, and let's go to verse 21. If you're there, say amen. All right. And the Lord God caused the deep sleep to fall on who? Adam. Very good. And he what? Slept. He took one of his ribs, closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a what? Woman. And he brought her to who? The man, right? And notice this. Adam says this. Now, if there are margins that exist in your Bible, at what Adam says next, do you guys see those margins? Some of your Bible? Not listening? (laughs) Notice right here. You notice there's a margins with Adam's song that he sings next, right, to Eve. The reason why you see margins there is something because in Hebrew it's called paradigmatic parallelism. It means Hebrew poetry. In other words, what comes out of Adam's mouth next is poetic language. Do you know what poetry is? What's poetry? Men? Start with the men first. What's poetry? Raise your hand. Any bold, courageous men here? What is poetry? Yes, finally a victim. I'm sorry, friend. Go ahead. Do your best. Yeah, so in other words, like poetry is a form of communication that expresses more of emotion and, uh, of the heart than ordinary narrative language could ever do, right? That's, and that's exactly what I was getting from you. So here's the thing. And, and you really were, you were saying it. You were saying it. I was, I was. It's just, it, okay, I mean, that's a deeper semester, so that's why Yeah, and, and that's, that's, you said some good words right there. And it's important for us to understand because when Adam sees Eve, what comes out of his mouth is poetic language. But I want you to see what happens next. Notice what the Bible says, therefore, verse 24, a man shall leave his father and mother and be what? Joined to his wife and they shall become one, what? One flesh. Emotionally, physically, spiritually, right? Socially, they became one flesh and notice what the Bible says, and they were both what? Naked and the man and his wife and were not ashamed. How Genesis chapter 2 ends, how perfection ends is with this beautiful, beautiful, sexual picture of Adam. Sure, it's talking about their, their, uh, their righteousness also before God, but it's, it's using the context of man and woman and their, their, their sexual connection together. Friends, I want you to understand this. Don't understand this any other way. God is the one who created sex. Can you say amen to that? Amen. We need to be excited and proud about that. God <laughs> created sex sex. This thing didn't come from the devil. It wasn't some kind of necessary evil. God himself was the one responsible for uh, this experience of sex. Now, here's what's so amazing, friends. When you study out the Song of Solomon, you know, when I was uh, going to college and I was reading the Song of Solomon, I'd just become Seventh-day Adventist and I wondered to myself, what is this book doing in the Bible? <laughs> In fact, when we were at the lunch, sometimes I would be reading it. I never forgot this one instant. I'd be coming, to, going across the Old Testament, and I came to the Song of Solomon, and I was reading it, and I went into the lunch uh, area. And as I was reading it, somebody came and sat down to me. And you know what I did? I closed my Bible. <laughs> I, like, I do not want them knowing I read this book, right? <laughs> and I remember the first time I read it, I thought to myself, what is this doing here? Like, I, I don't understand it. But it's this beautiful picture of a man and woman who fall in love. Now, here's the thing I want to ask you, by the raising of your hands, what word does not appear in the Song of Solomon? Raise your hand. Okay, so let me just one. Raise your hand? <laughs> All right, lift it like this. All right, like this. All right. What word does not appear in the Song of Solomon? It's this beautiful picture of a man and woman and a woman who is just absolutely adores this man and they drink of the fountain of love. You know what word does not appear there in the Song of Solomon? The word children. In other words, the purpose of sexuality is more than reproduction. Amen? Amen? Amen. Sexuality was meant to be this beautiful thing. And let me just add one more thing to this, really powerful. The reason why you find so many garden references in the Song of Solomon is because it is meant to point you back to the garden of Eden. as this man and woman... Just come together in this beautiful expression of biblical sexuality. All the garden references are pointing you back to the Garden of Eden and what it was like in the Garden of Eden between Adam and Eve. It's such a beautiful thing when you're studying it. I feel like the guy on the the other thing is trying to out yell me right now. Let's continue with this. (laughs) Song of Solomon right there. Notice what the Bible says over and over again right there. It says, I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not stir up love until it or, or, or stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. I charge you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not stir up nor awaken love until it pleases. What you find when you're reading the Song of Solomon, even though there's this beautiful expression of love and the serendipity of romance that exists, and the tension and emotion, you will still find that there are boundaries. Boundaries that exist within the Song of Solomon. Boundaries that are there. Wait a minute, don't don't, don't go too far ahead yet. Just just wait till the right time. Can you say amen to that? Wait till the right time. Number two, within the context of what? Marriage. Marriage, sexuality meets its highest what? purpose now let me ask a question anybody here enjoy fireplaces i love fireplaces anybody here Uh, especially on a cold rainy day maybe it's snowing right we don't get too much snow in california but imagine just like you have this fireplace or furnace right the fire is crackling crackling right and you're there and it's like oh your dog's there someone brings you maybe just some roma or whatever um and they're just like oh this is great you have your bible there and it's just a beautiful thing fire in a fireplace on a cold day is a beautiful thing amen fire right here is not a good thing in other words fire out of its context can become dangerous are you listening to me fire out of its context can become a dangerous thing or it can become a life giving thing within its context and that's important for us to understand when it comes to understanding something about marriage, anybody here have a dog okay anybody here have a German shepherd you're blessed of the Lord, I have a German shepherd too his name is Hero, H-E-R-O. Hero is a good dog. And there's something I, I just, man, Hero's a great dog. And I uh, bought him off Craigslist, 200 bucks from some Indian guy. It was a good deal. So anyways, that's unnecessary information. But so well, I have this dog, okay? And every time I travel, I come home. And you know what this dog does? He comes running to me, and he comes up jumping and sort of starts to push me. And uh, he's gone big. He's a full-grown, four-year-old dog now. And uh, when he comes push me, I sort of push him back, and he'll go running off, happy, I'm home. One day he did this to me. He came, pushed me, and I pushed him off. And a good boy hero, and he goes running off. And he goes into the living room, and all of a sudden I hear this, arr, arr, and I walk into the living room. And this fool, you know what he's doing? <laughs> he's chasing himself in a circle. And he was chasing his tail. And when he got his tail, I saw when he got his tail, he bit into his tail, and he yelped. <laughs> you know why he yelped? Because he thought he was chasing a someone. When in reality, he was chasing a something. And when you chase a something rather than someone, you're going to be hurt in the end. Sex is not to be something complete. (laughs) Just... Let me go over here. (laughs) (laughs) Sex is not meant to be just a thing. It's meant to be part of a beautiful picture of love in marriage, within the context of marriage. Can you say amen to that? And that's what we need to understand, right? Does anybody know what this is right here? What is this? The chemical formula? Raise your hand if you know what this is. Raise your hand. I can't, I don't know. I, I can't hear you. You can't raise your hand. What is it? Wrong. Anybody else? Yes, in the back. Oxytocin. You're right. And we know what's on your mind, brother. <laughs> oxytocin, right? That's how you knew the answer, right? Because it was on your mind. Anyways, uh, this is the chemical formula for oxytocin. Do you know what a nickname is for that uh, chemical, oxytocin? Yeah, you might have heard this before, right? They consider it sort of the, 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 the love juice, right? It's something your body excretes. But it's, it's very interesting to understand the, the dynamic in which this, uh, this is you know, secreted in the body, okay? This actually is secreted especially during times of affection between a man and woman. It appe- it, it, it's most released in the body after sex. It's also for women released during a time of um, nurturing her, her newborn baby. For men, it's primarily released during sex. What is interesting about this is that this, this chemical actually creates a greater bond between two people. There was a study that was done where they took, it was in Finland, they actually took a, a group of, you know, males, big males, and they just healthy, they brought them in. And what they did is they had this uh, interviewer, this seductress. And what her job was to do was to uh, interview the men. They had no idea what was going to happen. They took some of the men, half the men, and they uh, had a nasal form of artificial oxytocin. They sprayed in their nose. And what they found out was this. And these males, by the way, all were in relationships. They sat down with the interviewers, and the ones that did not have the nasal spray sprayed into them, they noticed that they began to flirt with this seductress. But they noticed that the ones that were given the, the dosage, they kept the distance. this was very clear that the oxytocin was actually also preserving a monogamous relationship they had with somebody else. Very interesting. Together our results suggest that where oxytocin release is stimulated during a monogamous relationship, it additionally promotes its maintenance by making men avoid signaling romantic interest to other women through close approach behavior during social encounters. In this way, oxytocin may help to promote fidelity among within monogamous human relationships. But here's the bad news. When a man and woman have sex before marriage, oxytocin becomes released. Um, they become bonded together. Then they eventually decide, maybe we should probably get married. We might have, you know, a child together. And you know what they realize? A year or two, down, year, or two years down the road, I married the wrong person. Well, why'd you get married? We just felt this incredible bond. Well, why? Because we had sex with each other. You see what I'm talking about? So it's very important to understand that this, you know, these, some of these things that God designed in us, sort of these biological elements that they themselves have a place and time and environment for them to be released which contributes overall to the relationship and its stability but you don't want that release prior to the time of marriage you want it to release after marriage can you say amen to that all right let's continue with this number three sex is a journey not just a destination right right sex i want to say it louder than that guy is a journey. <laughs> no, this is the third seminar i think am a little okay sex is a journey not just a destination you know it's amazing there's this interesting story a man by the name of daniel t bordeaux and marion j saxby okay so what happened is these two pioneers got married and they decided to invite james white to officiate in the wedding and it took place at this amazing estate they get there they do the wedding when they were done with the wedding, the estate owner tells James and Ellen White, hey, why don't you guys stay a night in one of the state rooms? It's totally free. It's on us. So they do. In the middle of the night, Ellen White has to go to the restroom, and restrooms weren't located in the actual room. You had to go out into the lobby to find the restroom, right? She gets up. She goes into the lobby, and you know what she found? She found Daniel T. Bordeaux on the couch in the lobby, and he stood up, began walking around. His palms were sweaty, and he was very, very nervous about this first night. This was in the middle of the night. He didn't know what to do. You want to know what Ellen White says, Tim? It's very interesting. Notice this. When Ellen White went upstairs to retire, she saw a very nervous young man pacing back and forth in front of a closed bedroom door. She suspected a problem. She said to the young bridegroom as the bride later quoted her husband's recital of the incident, Daniel, inside that room is a frightened young woman in bed, petrified with fear. Now, you go into her right now, and you love her, and you comfort her, and Daniel, you treat her gently, and you treat her tenderly, and you treat her lovingly. It will do you good. Amen? But notice this. Then she added, Daniel, it will do you good, too. (laughs) I kind of imagine her saying with a bit of a smile, it will do you good, too. (laughs) Right? It's getting hot in here, right? I don't think it's just the temperature, right? The point I'm trying to bring out is this, is that Elmot even understood, look, hey, this thing about sex, it's going to be a journey in which two people are growing in. It's not going to be this like, and let me just be very frank. with Can I be frank with you? Sure. Your first night is going to be sloppy and messy. It's not going to look like, oh, there's these millions of roses on the bed. There's candles. People take a picture like, hey, put it on Instagram. You're going to wake up that morning and you're going to be like, You're going to feel awkward, and they're going to feel awkward. But that's okay. And you know what's going to happen in time? You two are going to grow. You two are going to come together. You two are going to work together. And you two are going to experience more and more the beauty of a physical relationship within the context of marriage. Where the Bible says, and in the marriage bed, there is no defileness." Amen? Amen? And that's what's so beautiful about this. Is she encouraging this? Um... Yeah, let's continue with this. Our sexuality is deeply connected to our spirituality. What do I mean by that? You know what's really interesting? When you study up the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, we know a lot about the fruit sins that were existing within Sodom and Gomorrah, the disregard for another person's life, sort of the, the, the forcing of one's will and all the other things that came with it. But it's interesting, in the book of Ezekiel, we oftentimes quote this as the root sin. And the Bible points that out. Notice what it says. Ezekiel 16, verse 49. Look, this was the iniquity of your sister Sodom. She and her daughter had pride, fullness of bread, and abundance of idleness, and neither did she strengthen the hand of the poor and needy. This is very important for us to know. God is not just simply pointing out sins here. He is pointing out sort of the, the environment that created Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, what is that? Look at notice, notice these key elements. A, pride, B, fullness of bread, C, idleness, and D, refuse to serve those who are less fortunate. But also within God pointing this out, you find also God giving good things to people to understand, especially to those that might have had a past or or feel like they're trapped in some kind of sexual addiction or whatever. God is actually also pointing out areas of your life that if you change these areas of life will help you to combat some of the addictions, specifically in regards to pornography that exists. Well, what are they? Number one, having a humble spirit depending upon Christ. Amen? Amen. Number two, fullness of bread. What is that talking about? It's talking about the power of appetite. Where Adam and Eve fell, Jesus picked up the ground. He picked up uh, the, the, the 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 contest and he defeated Satan on the avenue of appetite. There's nothing more than affects our Uh, natures than the foods that we eat, the way we live our lifestyles and different things. Uh, And as a problem, one of the things that we do is we tend to eat so much. And what happens is as we eat so much, food goes into the stomach and blood begins to leave other parts of your brain and soon you begin to end up sort of in this fuzz. It's really interesting because the power of appetite is so strong. You want to know how powerful the appetite is? Try fasting. Yeah, you ever fast? I had one friend, by the way, he called me up and he said, Hey, Anel, I'm going to fast for you. I just feel impressed to fast for you. I'm like, oh, praise the Lord, man. It was like 8 a.m. This brother calls me at 10 a.m. And he's like, "Anel, I failed in the fast. <laughs> and I was like, bro, it's only been two hours. He's like, I know. I just started getting a headache. I felt dizzy. And I'm like, just, just eat. It's okay. The Lord knows your heart, right? But we know what it's like when we fast sometimes. I mean, it can be an intense thing, right? But when you fast, you recognize Man, my appetite is so strong. I did this 10-day fast one time where I did three days of juicing, then seven days of raw. I would literally wake up craving like veggie burgers. And I'm like, why is this on my tongue right now? Why is this on my mouth? One day it was this vegan case. I'm like, why am I thinking about this stuff right now? And I'd be talking to somebody, and I just, in my mind, I'm like, food, 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 food. (laughs) And I realized, man, the power of appetite is so strong. Jesus fasted on our behalf uh, to, to give us victory. He reached a state in his humanity where he could identify with the weakest of individuals. And he overcame through the power of his word and his victory becomes our victory. Amen. Amen? So if you want to have victory in this area, perhaps you may be someone struggling with a sexual addiction of some sort, start with the area of A, humility. B, learn to control your appetite. Make adjustments where you need to make adjustments. By the way, I studied this book. My, um, I'm working on a master's in public health with emphasis in nutrition. We... Um, study up the history of food, and it's very interesting. Uh, during the time of Rome's glory, you know what they would do? They would actually take caged animals. They would prod the caged animals till the caged animal was very just upset and just angry and ferocious, and then they would slay the caged animal and eat the animal because they believed the state the animal in which the animal died would then be transported to the soldiers, and to some degree, they were right. It's really interesting. You ever heard of something called Kobe beef? You know what Kobe beef is? Yes, yeah, it's this really expensive beef. Do you know why it's expensive? Because they actually massage the animal before killing it to place him in a state of rest. Because if he's agitated, there are hormones and chemicals that are released that actually change the texture of meat. So Kobe beef is really expensive because it maintains their, uh, the, you know, the, the normal texture of meat in those animals. It's really interesting to see what, the, what changes when we adjust our diets. And we'll get into more on that some other time. Uh, number three, idleness. Idleness. And there's never a time that the devil can create opportunities it's during a time of idleness. Times when we feel like we've got nothing to do. Times we feel bored. Times we're just like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do right now. I'm just going to turn on the TV. And you're like, wait a minute. I like kind of watching this station. Or how about that movie? And soon we're watching things we probably shouldn't be watching. Idleness creates this platform for us to get um, trapped in these kinds of things. So if we want to overcome, one of the things is to start making sure that we take care of our time. Can you say amen to that? All right. The last thing is a refusal to serve. They refused to serve those who were less fortunate. And uh, because they failed to do the work of God, they they took on the spirit of the oppressor. It's amazing. When you study out that story in John chapter 4 about a woman who had a sexual problem, She was a woman at the well. She met at Jacob's well. And Jesus begins to talk to this woman. And when this woman is ready for the water of life, Jesus says, hey, wait a minute. Your cup is already full with something else. What's that? You've had six husbands. And the one you're with, you're not even married to. This woman didn't get married over and over again simply because she just wanted to get married and love the ceremony. She had some kind of addiction. We don't know all the the degree to which that addiction was, but she felt that she could find this need in one person to another person to another person to another person to, another person, to the point where she even decided, the last person, I'm not going to bother marrying him, I'm just going to sleep with him. And she was. And you know what Jesus does? He doesn't leave her side. He doesn't run away. He doesn't stop and say, well, I'm done with you. You know what he does? he sticks it out with this woman and he says I'm the water of life I'm the one you've been looking for and this woman as she's realizing it she leaves the water pot and she heads to the town she becomes his evangelist now here's the thing I want you to understand do you think she, before she became an evangelist she stopped at that seventh person's house and said hey we need to break up nope in other words she became an evangelist not, be, not after she was delivered but while she was being delivered can you say amen to that? This woman began to realize something about the Savior. And that is at the very moment that she realized she was fully known but fully loved. A beautiful change began to take place in her heart. She realized that God understood all the filth in her life. He understood all the the, the junk that was there. The things that people knew about and the things that people didn't know about. And there's nothing more that causes shame in our life than sexual sin. But Jesus did not abandon this woman during her time of brokenness. He stood by her side. Even though he was able to open up her history and show her, look, I know all the things about your life. And I'm not telling anybody. I'm here because I love you and I want to save you. And this woman began to understand something. And this woman began to uh, just grasp something about the Savior's love. That he is a friend of sinners can you say amen to that Jesus is a friend of sinners I love what Ellen say says right here hearts that have been the battleground of the conflict of Satan that have been rescued by the power of love notice this are more precious to the Redeemer than those who have never fallen God looked upon humanity not as vile and worthless he looked upon it in Christ saw as it might be through redeeming love can you say amen to that you know, when Jesus is your Savior, you not just get a new future, you get a new past. Amen? Because you get His history. And Jesus stands as your intercessor to the times that you are struggling, broken, and weaker than you've ever been weaker before. Weak before. And times that you feel like you're getting great victory, Jesus walks with you to the place of victory and overcoming. Can you say amen to that? Amen. And in regards to sexuality, the first thing you need to understand, number one, God loves you. Amen. Amen. God loves you, not before you change, after you change. God loves you, as the Almighty says, as you are, and you may come to Him as you are, sinful, helpless, and needy. But He doesn't just leave you there. He not only cleanses, He begins to purify. You see, the key to finding victory in this area—it's not just about saying no to sin; it's about yielding the will to God and saying yes to God over and over again. Yes to God. Yes to God. Yes to God. Lord, I'm surrendering right now how I feel. I'm saying yes to you. I'm not strong enough to say no to sin, but I'm saying yes to you. But as you say yes continually over and over to God, and then you begin to make those adjustments where you need to make those adjustments, you will find victory, and one victory will prepare the way for other victories. Amen? Amen. Amen. God is good. And He cares about you. He cares about me. We have nothing to be ashamed of. We have nothing to be ashamed of when the righteousness of Christ is upon us. Biblical sexuality is something we can talk about. It's something that we can appreciate. It's something we can celebrate. It's something that we can be joyful and look forward to. Amen? Let's bow our heads for a word of prayer and then we'll do some questions. Father in heaven, we just thank you so much again for this time. Even though, Lord, we didn't uh, scratch the surface, we pray that Lord, I'm just impressed with this verse right now that you can um, restore the years that the locusts have eaten. And God, thank you for your grace and mercy that covers and cleanses us and still grants us these special blessings and opportunities. Thank you, Lord. You desire still to give your best to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, let's do some questions. Questions we got about six minutes. Questions. Make your question loud and clear. No preamble. Let's just get right to it. Yes, question. Sure, sure. I think, um, you know, the one thing I'm thinking of right off the back right now is, you know, the first full day that Adam and Eve spent with each other was the Sabbath. And I think through the Sabbath, it was not just meant to be a place of vertical relationships, but horizontal relationships. And I think the Sabbath is actually is all, you know, part of God's plan as well that allows us to interact with people and connect with people. We're not just stifled with the rest of the world. So I would say the Sabbath is very important. Number two, if you are in time of intense study, I get that. There may be a time for you just say, you know what, I have to focus. Especially for those that are in med school, y'all are crazy. That Those classes, anyways, let me get started on this. I have friends who are in med school. And, uh, and, and let me be frank on this. Many of them end up getting relationships and breaking up really quickly. And the reason why is because they're vying for attention. So if you're in a time of intense study, it might be best to maybe just put, sort of put the brakes on it. Now, unless this intense study is going to last for like eight years, nine years, you know, um, okay, medical school. Okay. gotcha. I I would say take advantage of, you know, experiences like this at the conference, use the Sabbath to connect. And by the way, this is really important. I want to say this. I didn't get to say this at the last meeting. You may feel like I'm not in any good uh, circles. I can't find any lions, elephants or bears or fish around me. My church, I'm the only young adult. You may feel like that. Anybody felt like that before? Okay. Three honest people here. Okay, um, I would say this, and I think this is really important. Since we don't live in an agrarian society, if you have good friends who care about you and friends you can trust, don't be afraid to actually tell them, say, hey, I care about you and I know you care about me. If you know somebody you think would be good for me, be on the lookout for me and, you know. You know what I mean? By the way, when you talk to you, when you look at Genesis chapter 24, the servant is also one of the main actors. First he talks to Abraham, then he talks to God, then he talks to Rebecca, then he talks to Rebecca's family, then he talks to Isaac. He is somebody that is playing the role of not just someone who's, you know, in the relationship, but someone who's involved in actually helping out. And like, look, you know, he's like, I, I, gotta, I care about my servants, uh, my, my master's son, and I'm going to be on the lookout for him. And if you have good friends that you just like, no, they're godly friends, and they know your taste. You know, I mean, they're not trying to find you like the beast from the east, you know what I mean? Like this, like, but you're just kind of like, you're just kind of like, man, they know my life, they know, you know, generally, it may not be exactly the person I want, but generally they care for me, entrust them with that, and you may have to have a conversation with them, and it may seem kind of weird, but here's the thing, you don't have to feel weird about it. We're not living in a society, again, where your parents may do this work for you, and you want them to be involved, but many times you may not have a godly family, you know, who can do that for you, so... Good friends who care about you and are godly and pray. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes. You say this is a voodoo subject or taboo subject? (laughs) Okay. sure uh it's a very interesting question i would say this that um and and i think there's a few things we can kind of we'll take in the sort of angle at this and stuff um generally people who masturbate are thinking about somebody else you know like that's on their mind they're lusting after somebody else they're not like oh there's a wall there they're lusting after somebody else so in that that they're lusting there is a, a, a violation of the conscience happening there okay number two i would say this regardless of what science is saying your um what's being released from your body is a nutrition cocktail and this nutrition cocktail is being released and what's happening is when this when this is released from the body there are hormones that are released there are sensations that are released even within the mind and there has been, there has been studies I've, I've looked at that are counter to some of these studies. Oh, it's totally healthy. It's totally like, okay. It's emotional. Where they've actually seen a decrease in overtime of the libido of men who, who continually masturbate. Um, so it affects them on different levels. The third thing I would say is this. For those that um, do masturbate, when you look at the studies of how they interact now with their spouses, it's very diminished from what it could have been because they had this habit. So, you know, I think... Um, Science is is, is very limited. At least current research is very limited on their perspective. They're not looking at the holistic picture of this. And I think that's what's beautiful about the Spirit of Prophecy and the Bible is that we're seeing a holistic effect happening here that does affect back and reverts back to changes in the body and in the mind in social behaviors as well as a result. And I think that's undeniable. But very, very good question. Yes? Do your best. Okay. Sure. Sure. I think uh, that's a good question. So when you have societies that in which birth control, birth control did not exist, it was like, we're getting married. The idea is we're probably going to have kids really soon. Um, this, this now is available to us. Um, it, it would be wrong for us to bring a bunch of children when we don't have any kind of finances to be able to take care of children like that. It would be wrong on us. We're, we're, we're being wrong stewards there. And I think uh, birth control you know, within a marriage, I mean, I, I, I don't see anything particularly wrong with it. I don't think it's, it's a violation of the conscience. I think it's it's carefulness. It's proper planning. It's it's not a violation of life itself. Abortion is completely a different issue here. But we're just talking about contraceptives here. Yeah. So I think um, I would probably advise the whole idea of pulling out. I think that can have an effect upon the relationship in some way, even in, indis- uh, indis- in, in ways that cannot always be discerned. So I would say probably a better use would be contraceptives, you know. But I don't think there's sin in those things as you're trying to be careful about. Yeah. Yeah, sure, one of the sons of Judah actually did that. He pulled out, but when you study the context, is that he was trying to stop an heir being born. This was very important, especially in the Jewish culture. When they knew that the Messiah was coming down the the lineage, he was married, she was wanting a wife. There seems to be dynamics that were indicating that he was violating uh, God's will at this moment, you know, the dynamics of it. And you know this because she ends up being in the heritage of the Messiah, which is really remarkable, you know? And so... Yeah, it's not like, oh, yeah, he pulled out. That's a sin of itself. Um, I think the context reveals what was going on there and where God was like, hey, that's enough. Yes, question? Okay, uh, this Sure, sure. Sure, it's, I don't think in any way it's meant to be an example. I think what you're looking at is a, a, a situation where Joseph was very apprehensive, now understanding the Messiah was part of this. He was like, you know, I want to be very careful here. You know what I mean? <laughs> the, 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 the promised hope for thousands of years is now in this womb. I, I'm, just, I'm going to love her, give her all the emotional support. You know, and I, you know, I can just imagine him going to sleep. It was probably very awkward, but as soon as it was done, he felt like, okay, the, the, the first phase of this mission is complete. I, I think my, you know, I can take care of my wife now in that area. But I don't believe in any way that's meant to be, you know, um, when you study out, like, you know, as far as, like, even the biology of a woman who's pregnant, there is a period of time, you know, where it's, it's, it's totally fine and healthy, a woman who's pregnant, you know. So, any other questions? Okay, just a few more. Yes. Sure. Uh, I would say this, that you're going to have differences that exist. I think part of the whole dating slash sanctified courtship, whatever you call it, is going to be for the very pro- time of you to understand each other's differences to, to a certain degree. There's going to be a limit in which you can understand. Eventually you're going to have to step out into the marriage thing if that's the direction you feel good about. But, you know, just to, you can't know all there is on a person before you date them. And it's, it's how you guys work together and resolve some of those issues and conflict, you know. Um, it's not as categorized as we think it is. Oh yeah, you know I'm going to know everything about them. I'm going to know about their likes, their dislikes. You know This is the things that sometimes idealism teaches. I'm going to know every single thing about them. I'm going to know about their waking moment, the moment they go to sleep. I'm going to know what they're doing. No one's looking around. I mean, you can't figure that stuff out. You're not going to even know who that person is. And there's going to be some things in marriage you're going to discover that you could not discover any other way that was impossible for you to discover. But that is what marriage is supposed to be. It's an unfolding of a relationship. But it's how you learn to work And if these things are, you know, strong deal breakers, I think those are things that you can kind of flush out and work through in the relationship, early relationship stage. I don't know if I answered your question. Okay, anybody else? Yes. Yes. Sure. I think um, your, your priority is first what God wants, and the second priority is for this cause. A man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. In other words, there is a unit that exists that was meant to be separate from all other groups, all of the relationships, and that takes the priority. Um, even regardless of how strong the the, co- the collective body may be, you have to work within the dynamics. Like if you go to the Indian culture, for example, arranged marriages are traditional Indian cultures. Arranged marriage is a big thing. And you're getting married not just to a person, but to a family. And there's expectations that are there. But I think where there's freedom and understanding and communication, uh, I think it's important that you share what needs to be said and be careful of being pushed into a decision that you may regret later on. Uh, no one should pressure you into marriage with to somebody. You know, no matter how strong the other influences are, you have to feel like, man, this is I feel like this is a good thing. I feel like I really interested and love this person. So I'm pretty sure I didn't hit your question, but anyways. A few more questions and we're done. Yes, with the glasses in the back. Oh, uh, sexuality meets its highest purpose within the context of marriage. Any other questions? Yes. Yes. Sure. Yeah. Sure. I think uh, each circumstance is going to be different. I think generally um, it's important to recognize that someone who has a past history of sleeping with people, multiple people, multiple partners, inevitably it's going to come into A present relationship that's that's no question about that but i think um if you feel like man this is a person god has brought there's someone who's grown and converted you may have to carry a cross in that area if that's something you feel like i'm willing to do you know um but i think uh in regards to looking at somebody and just initially i think it's important to weigh out these things like what what has been their history is this something that's just recent oh they just stopped sleeping around with somebody last year or five months ago they just got baptized See, that's why time needs to, let things marinate a little bit to find out, okay. How has a person been since stopping a certain behavior that was not healthy at time, you know. And the question, yes. Um, what do you think about like Could could you reiterate that a little bit? You said asexual? Okay, like in other words, they're not really interested in sex? Okay. That's a good question. <laughs> I would say this, that, um, you know, like that example, what you saw with Ellen White dealing with that person, those people were freaked out. I mean, there were reasons behind why they were freaked out. I think someone who experiences like, hey, I love this person, they wanna get married, but I don't really have this like interest in like sex, I think it's important to get some counseling here. And the reason why is because there may be things underneath the surface that need to be sort of taken out, examined, you know what I mean? Because, like I was saying, um, sexuality is very much connected to our spirituality. And I think in some areas that we're free, it may open up a change in people. There are people who have apprehension to all forms of sex. Like, they're just like, I don't want anything to do with it. But there's something that's brought about that idea. There's something that's a mentality, you know? Um, and I think it's important to examine that via counselor or psych, you know a psychiatrist, and when you do, and you feel like, okay, we're making progress, I'm seeing things, you can proceed. I want to get married and just, oh, hopefully things will work out, you know, everything will go on autopilot, you know. I think you need to deal with some of these things prior to the marriage. This message was recorded at the GYC conference by many or by few in Louisville, Kentucky. GYC, a supporting ministry of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, seeks to challenge and inspire young people to take a sacrificial initiative for Christ. To download other resources like this, visit us online at gycweb.org.